0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us today. Author and noted historian Kevin Duffus is with us today to cover our story, Blackbeard, the Man and the Myth. And there's much to cover this week as we discuss the fate of Blackbeard's captured crew, the outcomes faced by some of Blackbeard's Bathtown crewmates, as well as Blackbeard's friend and advisor, Customs Collector. Tobias Knight, and North Carolina Governor Eden, as well as answers to a number of questions ranging from, did Blackbeard really light his beard with fuses to terrify his adversaries? And how many wives did he have? Where did he keep his treasure? And did he have one? And what motivated Virginia Governor Spotswood to take down Blackbeard in the first place? These questions and many more today with Kevin Duffus. Kevin, I've been scouring your research articles you sent me, and the more I learn, the more I'm beginning to believe that the mighty Blackbeard might have remained just a footnote in pirate history were it not for the ten-minute battle at Ocracoke which cost him his head. I'm beginning to see he and his loyal crew as they really were, young men from what was then the struggling town of Bath, North Carolina, sons of mariners and plantation owners whose plantations were not at the time profitable young men who sailed to the Florida coast with hundreds of other treasure-hungry coasties and state-sponsored expeditions to gather plunder from the Spanish ships wrecked there in the 1715 storm. It was just an adventure for them. You accurately described them as salvagers turned pirates, a salvage effort which turned into a British government-approved hunt for Spanish ships, then French ships, and within a period of less than two years, this bath crew was able to return home expecting a pardon, with a cargo of captured slaves and casks of merchant goods and probably some loot, a portion of which went to Knight and Eden in one form or another. From that effort, a huge money-making myth was created, like a growing patchwork quilt. Each writer creating a patch and others copying it, until the legend of Blackbeard outshines that of Captain Morgan and William Kidd, who deserved their sometimes illegally gotten fame. Kevin, do you think I've got most of that right? Yes, John,
1: That uh, you pr- did a pretty good job of uh, summing up the story as I have analyzed it and interpreted it. The story itself is so much more complicated than uh, historians have led us all to believe over the years. You've heard the expression, <laughs> history repeats itself, but I believe it's more accurate to say that historians repeat each other. Uh, the true story of Blackbeard, um, so many subjects, including economics and politics and human nature. And it requires a diligent historian to understand all of those subjects. But also, it's important to know the history that that Blackbeard and his fellow pirates knew during their own lives, because everything that led up to the golden age of piracy helped to form the attitudes and the perspectives of these young men who eventually became pirates.
0: Let's knock down a few myths before we get started. The first one being myth or not, did he really light fuses in his beard to terrify his adversaries? I love
1: getting this question just about everywhere I go. The truth is that it was, would have been very impractical someone to put burning fuses uh, around their ears or under their hat, especially if you had a beard. I have a friend who is a well-known pirate reenactor who told me he once tried this. Uh, It turned out to be a a somewhat windy day, and he said the only person it scared was himself because he was afraid he was going to set his own beard on fire. My belief or my analysis of this is that uh, anyone who's ever uh, spend any time on the east coast of the United States, especially along the outer banks of North Carolina, where there's a lot of swampy areas. All Everyone knows that mosquitoes can be quite a problem. And if you've ever sat around a campfire on an de- evening when there was not much wind, uh, it was readily apparent that uh, smoke helped to discourage mosquitoes. Even Native Americans prior to the first contact period, beginning on the coast of North Carolina in 1584, were aware that, um, and were quite habitual about using fires to keep mosquitoes at bay. So I can envision an evening where Blackbeard and his closest friends were sitting around a campfire on the shore uh, at Ocracoke Island, and they were talking about how the smoke was keeping the mosquitoes away, and Blackbeard decided to take it one step better, and just as a as a joke, put these slow-burning fuses and let them. And, of course, that eventually, if that, in fact, did happen, that would have been great jailhouse gossip and eventually sort of snowballed into um, a very significant part of the Blackbeard folklore that we're all so fond of today. But, uh, no, I don't think that he ever did that in order to frighten his victims. I mean, think about it too. If he were uh, engaging another vessel that he hoped to capture and uh, it was a few hundred yards uh, away and all of his pirates were jumping up and down and shouting and he rushed to his cabin and grabbed a couple of fuses and stuck them under his hat, uh, no one on the other vessel would have actually seen that. So it's really impractical. Uh, as as an idea.
0: Question for you. Who is Israel Hands, and what happened to him after he gave evidence against Tobias Knight and also Governor Eden, if I'm correct, on giving evidence against both?
1: Yes, Israel Hands did testify against uh, Tobias Knight, the Collector of Customs, and also Governor Charles Eden during the trials, or, or really the depositions that were being taken from the pirates after they had been captured in North Carolina and transported to Williamsburg. The only reason why we actually know this for certain is that some of this, uh, some of the testimony or depositions were uh, copied and then uh, transferred or transmitted to North Carolina to the governor's council for the purpose of uh, putting Tobias Knight on trial. There are no surviving documents or records of the pirate trial's that exist in Virginia. None of the original records survived uh, one of a couple of fires that occurred in Williamsburg that burned the Capitol building. Israel Hands was the sailing master of the Queen Anne's Revenge when it arrived on the coast of North Carolina at what is today known as Beaufort Inlet. However, he was not one of those men who was on Blackbeard's crew who I have been able to associate uh, uh, or connect to uh, bath north carolina or the uh, owners of the plantations there so he was almost certainly one of the the outsiders i guess of blackbeard's inner circle he was of course very competent if he was the sailing master he was in charge of managing the ship queen anne's revenge and her sails and making sure she was sailing as fast or as slow as was required by the conditions. And he's also well-known in in Blackbeard lore for being the guy who Blackbeard purportedly uh, shot in the kneecap underneath a table in the great cabin. We don't believe it was on the Queen Anne's Revenge. It was almost certainly the sloop adventure, which Blackbeard had turned into his command vessel, which was about a 65-foot-long sloop, of about 60 tons. This may this, this event may have actually happened while they were uh, anchored just outside of the harbor at Bath. Why Blackbeard decided to shoot him in the kneecap, we don't know. Although again, uh, it's pretty clear that, that Israel Hands was not among his closest friends. I've also said and wrote this in my book that it was very unlikely that when Blackbeard did shoot him, if he did, he did not have a uh, a lead ball in his pistol. It was a, a blank charge, simply of gunpowder, because had there been a bullet in the gun, it would have ripped uh, Israel Hand's knee off, and he mm-hmm. probably would have bled out right there on the spot. But Israel Hand survived that shooting, so I believe it was simply a uh, probably a really bad bruise that he received as a result of that. Uh, the records do indicate that he was attended to by a physician in the town of Bath, but was then arrested after the Battle of Ocracoke for having been a member of Blackbeard's crew. But as far as his, as far as his ultimate fate, according to Captain Jar- Charles Johnson, who was the author of the book General History of Pirates, who we know now for the past 20 years was almost certainly uh, the London publisher named Nathaniel Mist, But according to Mist, or Johnson, Israel Hands was supposedly seen begging for bread on the streets of London a number of years later. So uh, somehow he made his way back to England, uh, and after that we know nothing about Israel Hands.
0: I've got a good question for you. What event motivated Virginia Governor Spotswood to send Captain Ellis Brand after Blackbeard and his crew?
1: Well, that's a that's certainly a great question, and it's a and the answer is rather complicated. Okay, uh, first of all, Lieutenant Governor Spotswood, and he's he's often mistakenly uh, characterized or described as Governor Spotswood, but Lieutenant Governor Spotswood was well aware of what was happening. Uh, in the West Indies uh, with pirates. In fact, uh, as I've written, uh, the golden age of piracy uh, was the result of really two uh, events. The first, of course, was the uh, wreck of 11 Mm -hmm. Spanish treasure ships on the central coast of Florida in July of 1715, which then ignited this gold fever that spread throughout the colonies. There were young men in sloops Coming from Jamaica and from New England and Virginia and South Carolina, we're all headed to the coast of Florida to try to recover treasure from this uh, tremendous catastrophe. There was gold and silver spread about uh, the beaches there. In fact, it's there are still uh, items of gold from those wrecks that is that are still being found in the shallow waters off the beaches there at Vero Beach, Florida. And even Governor, even Lieutenant Governor Spotswood was inspired to perhaps send uh, his own men to Florida. He even wrote a letter to uh, King George, saying that with his, with the king's permission, uh, that the salvage of gold or silver could certainly benefit his uh, citizens of uh, the Commonwealth or the or the colony of of Virginia. Uh, and then, of course, uh, would also sort of followed the, uh, the reports of this outbreak of piracy. Uh, he almost certainly received word, we know, actually, that in the summer of 1718, that uh, one of these Royal Navy captains uh, had received intelligence that a pirate named Thatch, also known as Blackbeard, uh, wrecked his flagship at... Uh, what was then called Topsail Inlet, now Beaufort Inlet, and uh, and they also uh, had reported that the name of the ship was Queen Anne's Revenge. Now, the name Queen Anne's Revenge was a uh, Jacobite name. Blackbeard uh, clearly was a supporter of the Stuart dynasty and the restoration of James to the throne of, of England uh, uh, to replace this German-speaking Hanover in King George the first. And Governor Spotswood uh, was almost certainly motivated partly for political reasons because he was trying to score points with King George for vanquishing this pirate who had the audacity to name his ship, a Jacobite named Queen Anne's Revenge. Uh, And it's often been said by uh, many other authors and historians and and also this was uh, derived from one of Spotswood's letters, that Spotswood decided to take action against these pirates who appeared to be making North Carolina mm-hmm. their base of operations, even though uh, we now know that many of them actually uh, called North Carolina home, that their fathers owned plantations along the Pamlico River. But according to Spotswood, um, he there were so many people coming up across the border from North Carolina, complaining about the depredations caused by these pirates that he decided finally to put a stop to it, that that the pirates in North Carolina were actually threatening the trade and economy of of Virginia. Well, my research, I, I have scoured every single possible source, and I could only come up with one individual who actually complained to Governor Spotswood, and that was a man named William Bell, who was a plantation owner who happened to be uh, traveling between Bath and uh, his plantation, which was along the what is now the Pungo River, uh, east of Bath. And at about four or five in the morning, he was greeted by this man, this very tall, skinny man with a long beard. They were anchored in the middle of the Pamlico River. And, of course, the tall, skinny man turned out to be Blackbeard, who decided to see if he could get William Bell to offer him a dram of brandy. And, of course, you have to picture this. It was a very dark night. And Bell said, no, I'm sorry. I, I can't offer you any brandy. It's too dark, and I don't really feel like opening my cask of brandy for you. And that uh, caused Blackbeard to then assault him. Uh, Black, uh, William Bell actually was getting the, the the better of Blackbeard in this struggle on these, uh, on these small boats, Blackbeard had to call for the help of his four oarsmen, four black men who I believe were Blackbeard's personal servants. And, and of course, uh, William Bell, uh, Blackbeard got what he wanted. He he took the cask of brandy, stole a couple of other things from William Bell, and then went on his way uh, on his journey back to Ocracoke. William Bell uh, w- went into Bath that morning and complained first to the governor and then uh, filed a, a written complaint with Tobias Knight and they pretty much ignored William Bell's con, uh, problem. Uh, William Bell eventually uh, made his way north and reported that he had been accosted by this uh, by this man suspected to be a pirate on the Pamlico River. That's the only instance, uh, the only uh, uh, pretext that Spotswood had for launching this invasion into North Carolina. Spotswood was also looking for Uh, a way to sort of uh, uh, burnish his reputation. He had been at odds uh, with his House of Burgesses, and and they were making many complaints about Spotswood and and his behavior. So Spotswood thought that this would make him a hero if he were able to launch this expedition into North Carolina.
0: Yeah, it was an awfully skinny excuse because um, they made it sound like Blackbeard had been raiding the Virginia coast, and as far as we know, he never raided the Virginia coast. Am I correct?
1: Well, no, In the year before, in the September of 1717, Blackbeard did capture a vessel or two. There was a a sloop called the Betty, which he captured, and, and I believe that probably was the incident that Spotswood might have referred to when he said that Blackbeard was Uh, interfering with the commerce of Virginia but that had been a year prior I mean Spotswood simply needed a uh, one pretext one one reason to launch this expedition now the other uh, important fact to remember is that Spotswood had absolutely no authority to do what he did the 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 expedition that he sent into North Carolina was uh, completely uh, an illegal act on the part of Virginia because according to the royal instructions that were given to every governor or lieutenant governor who were sent to the colonies to to rule those territories, it clearly stated that uh, you cannot send an armed force into a neighboring colony without the invitation of the chief executive of that particular colony. And in the instance of of the Blackbeard story, uh, Spotswood received no invitation from Governor Eden to do what he did. Uh, and so uh, that's a very important part of the story that has been overlooked by most historians.
0: We'll return to our interview with Kevin Duffus, author of The Last Days of Blackbeard the Pirate, right after these sponsor messages. Okay, back with you, Kevin. And we've got a couple of Mythbuster questions for you. The first is, how many wives, if any, did Blackbeard have?
1: That's a, uh, another question that I, I often hear from people, and my answer is no one really knows. The, it's often stated that Blackbeard married this young woman named Mary Ormond in Bath, and one thing that I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt is that there was no Mary Ormond in Bath, at the time that Blackbeard was there in 1718. In fact, the Ormond family did not appear in the records uh, until uh, about 20 years after Blackbeard was killed. So we can rule out Mary Ormond as one of Blackbeard's wives. There was a an official document, uh, a letter written by one of the Royal Navy captains, um, stating that there was a rumor that Blackbeard had married in North Carolina for the purpose of quote, putting a gloss on his designs, end quote, or in other words, to sort of make his retirement in North Carolina legitimate. However, that was uh, most likely secondhand or even thirdhand information. It's It was purely a rumor. And so to believe that as fact would be like believing everything that you would read in a tabloid magazine today. Uh, there's no reason <laughs> to assume that that was, in fact, true, but it is, it it may have been plausible, but when I look at the week-to-week travels of Blackbeard between the time that he wrecked the Queen Anne's Revenge, which was on June 10th of 1718, and July 1st when he arrived in Bla- Bath for the first time until his death five months later on November 22nd, he was actually in Bath very little He made uh, five visits over the period of five months and spending no more than a week each time. And so for anyone to believe that he had a wife there, if he did have a wife there or married there, he certainly was not interested in spending much time with her. And the fact that there are people uh, even today who believe that Blackbeard had a house at a place called Plum Point, which was across Bath Creek from where Tobias Knight and Governor Eden lived, uh, is absolutely not supported by any uh, verifiable source whatsoever. In fact, there does not even appear to have been a dwelling there at all at that time. So the the, the marriage subject and Black's residency in Bath in 1718 are all mostly uh, myth and folklore.
0: Let's get into Blackbeard's crew. And the, first, the place where I want to start is in Williamsburg, because the legend, ha- legend has it, especially if you're in Williamsburg, that Blackbeard's pirates were jailed there and hung there. And depending on where you're reading, they hung all but two. Why don't you straighten out our listers as to what really happened to the Blackbeard's captured crew?
1: Another great question. This took me uh, quite a bit of time to really research and analyze the true outcome of uh, the Battle of Ocracoke. What happened was that um, 15 pirates were had been arrested in North Carolina. There were nine who were captured following the Battle of Ocracoke, who were all mostly wounded. There were three men who were not uh, directly related to the crew the pirate crew and then there were six men who were arrested at bath uh two weeks after the battle when lieutenant maynard was finally able to sail up to bath aboard blackbeard sloop and so th- these 15 men were taken to bath and traditional history says that uh, you're correct that uh, 13 of the 15 were convicted as pirates and hanged. Uh, the problem with this is that uh, there are a number of these men can be found uh, in the official records of Bath, the deeds and wills and estate inventories and so forth for Beaufort County, which originally was Bath County, uh, for a number of years after their so-called execution. So I spent a, a great deal of time studying these various men and what actually happened to them. Uh, the first one who really caught my attention was a suspected pirate named James Robbins. His name appears in the book, General History of Pirates, as being one of the pirates who, were, who was hanged in Williamsburg. But James Robbins, interestingly enough, appears uh, in an official document in a paternity suit and this document stated that James Robbins was back in Bath uh, by the end of January of uh, 1719. As it happened, uh, James Robbins, in this paternity suit, was reported to have uh, bedded uh, or gone to bed with two women. It must have been a very cold night in January. And uh, it's a, it's a, I, I found it to be a rather humorous Uh, episode, he would have never imagined that 300 years later we'd still be talking about this night uh, that he had. (laughs) But there's no absolutely no doubt that this James Robbins was the same James Robbins who had been arrested or captured out at Ocracoke. There were a number of other pirates, including one named Edward Salter, who was also on the list of men who were supposedly executed in Williamsburg, who not only shows up back in Bath uh, two years later, but then has a very extensive uh, history or paper trail. Uh, he served uh, two terms as a representative in the, in the Colonial Assembly for Bath, and he was also the junior warden of the uh, English church there in Bath, known as St. Thomas Church. And I found a letter that he had signed uh, 20 years after he had been a pirate informing the Bishop of London that they had begun construction of St. Thomas Church, the first church in the in the colony. It's, it was a brick church, which still stands today. And so the more I looked into this, I realized that there were only uh, six out of those 15 men who were executed, and none of them were executed in Williamsburg. The, there are two very well-known authors who've written uh, books uh, that include information about Blackbeard who wax poetically about how these uh, 13 pirates were strung up uh, from one tree after another along Capitol Landing Road in Williamsburg and and then hanged and left to uh, continue to hang there uh, for quite some time. And as uh, genteel and sophisticated as Williamsburg was at that time, it's hard to imagine that such a gruesome thing would have ever been done. My research uh, contradicts all of that, and I have now proven that all of the executions, the six executions, took place uh, at Hampton on the waterfront there. And uh, the first two were two uh, white, men or white pirates who were executed in late January of 1719. And the, the log books of the two Royal Navy ships that were had been participating in this uh, capture of Blackbeard and his crew clearly report that these two executions took place. And then four uh, African-American men, and they were actually the four uh, servants or slaves uh, who uh, belonged or traveled with Blackbeard uh, were executed in March. Uh, a number of years ago, I informed the uh, authorities at Williamsburg of this, and at the time, the senior historian there t- completely agreed with my interpretation, and, and for a time, they stopped telling people that these pirates were hanged along Capitol Landing Road, but since then, he's moved on to another site, and um, <laughs> it seems that to, the Colonial Williamsburg does not want to disappoint its visitors. They love hearing about how these pirates were swinging from these tree limbs along Capitol Landing Road. So I think they're back to they also say it.
0: they also say that that money was removed from the pirate captives' uh, pockets in the Williamsburg jail, and those uh, that coinage went to William and Mary. That's one of the legends that still exist up there.
1: Well, and it, the that oh, you're only half right that the, the it, it wasn't the money from uh blackbeard's crew members but an earlier group of pirates who have actually been captured uh on the chesapeake bay for the moment the the names uh slipped my mind but that that is the story that some of that money did go into the uh the founding of the uh the university
0: uh you mentioned edward salter uh a moment ago you, in, the first, in episode one, you had mentioned there was a side story on Edward Salter's grave. Was that pretty much what you just covered? Or is there more on that?
1: Well, there, there's, there's quite a bit more. I'll try to sum it up as briefly as possible. But in the course of my research, working on my book, uh, I, of course, researched Edward Salter, who was a suspected pirate and who was not hanged uh, according, in con- contradiction to the established uh, uh, history. And uh, it happened that I, uh, of course, I researched Edward Salter's property. He was, after he had been a pirate, he, he was a cooper, he was the barrel maker uh, that Blackbeard had captured to serve on the Queen Anne's Revenge. And after uh, he had been taken to Williamsburg, he returned to Bath, and he actually started a, a cooperage business, uh, first bought a house on the main street of Bath, and then married and began to uh, establish a family, had a had uh, five children he uh, eventually purchased the 400 acre plantation that had previously been owned by governor charles eden this was across Bath creek on the west bank of the creek and i've continued my research and discovered that in 1986 the owners of that property, which was a uh, and is still a very large multinational mining corporation that happens to own this property as a private hunting preserve for their clients, uh, this company wanted to build a bulkhead along the shoreline, which had been eroding. And because it was known to be a culturally uh, sensitive historic area, the state of North Carolina uh, conducted an archaeological survey of the property. And in the process, they not only found uh, thousands of historic and prehistoric Native American artifacts, but they found uh, numerous uh, pieces of evidence supporting this colonial habitation. And in the process of that, they caused a the ground to collapse and discovered that uh, they had run a bulldozer over someone's crypt. And so when they opened this up, there was a rather perfectly well-preserved skeleton in this uh, very expensive, elaborate crypt. And they, uh, according to state law, they were permitted to remove uh, those bones. Uh, They had them examined at Wake Forest University and then returned them to Raleigh and stuck them in three cardboard boxes and more or less forgot about them. At the time, in 1986, uh, historians with the state Concluded that these remains were of a man named Edward Salter who had owned this property in the, the 1720s. What they didn't know was this Edward Salter was the Cooper on the Queen Anne's Revenge and had been a pirate for six months. <laughs> I knew that, and I also, I also had located living uh, descendants of Edward Salter and had communicated with them because I thought this was an interesting part of the story. This was. This was additional proof that Edward Salter wasn't hanged in Williamsburg, but not only lived a very productive life, redeemed himself his his time as a pirate, built a church, but then produced this family that perhaps there might be 100,000 descendants of Edward Salter walking the earth today. These members of the family that I had uh, reached out to then asked me if I would represent them in an effort to recover their ancestors' remains so that they could then be respectfully reburied, which is what he had uh, hoped for when on his deathbed he expressed in his will that he wanted to be respectfully buried. And so th- this was a, a multi-year effort, but we first attempted to reopen Edward Salter's estate so that I could be named the uh, administrator or executor of the estate for the purpose of fulfilling his dying wish. And that petition was denied in court, but then we presented evidence on appeal that uh, the state of North Carolina had not made uh, any effort whatsoever to locate next of kin when they stuck Edward Salter in a cardboard mm. box in downtown Raleigh. And so, on a, on appeal, we won, and uh, the state was ordered to turn over uh, Edward Salter's mortal remains to the family. I was responsible for receiving them. We took Edward Salter's bones to the Smithsonian to be uh, forensically ag- examined for one final time by Dr. Douglas Ow- Owsley, who's one of the premier anthropologists uh, at the Smithsonian. We took uh, did isotope tests. We were attempting to determine uh, Edward Salter's origins, where he was born, which we finally estimated to be in Whoa. the upper Chesapeake Bay region. Then my next problem was, you know, we wanted to rebury Edward Salter, and the multinational mining company would not let us return him to the, mm. to the crypt that he was pulled out of. And then I turned to St. Thomas Church in Bath, and the vestry of the church at the time was reluctant to consider uh, burying a man who had once been a pirate, even though he clearly redeemed himself and was actually one of the founding patrons of the church that they worshipped in every Sunday.
0: Where's forgiveness? Uh,
1: well, you would think so. Uh, although, ironically, this is the church is St. Thomas Church, uh, and of course, St. Thomas was the doubting apostle of uh, Christ's resurrection, <laughs> and and the vestry of St. Thomas Church doubted they. Uh, because they didn't want him buried in their churchyard, they actually doubted the identity of the skeleton, even though the state had already confirmed that. So we eventually prevailed. Um, we negotiated a, a, an arrangement that was acceptable to the family and also the, the church. And so Edward Salter is now buried there at the church that he helped to build. But the story actually goes on from there. I continued to research him and his family and... Three of his grandsons performed heroic roles in the American Revolution. Uh, one grandson had intercepted a, a very a vast cache of provisions and supplies that were intended for Cornwallis' army just before he marched into Virginia for the uh, final hmm. battle at Yorktown. Another grandson was uh, a sheriff who stopped collecting taxes a year before the Boston Tea Party. And then a fourth grandson was actually a, a two-term governor of Tennessee. So this is a very significant family, and wow. it's a fantastic story. You've got this man who was a reluctant pirate for six months, who again redeemed himself. He uh, escaped being hanged, And which I guess at this point I should also ex- explain why were some of Blackbeard's crew members hanged while others were not. And it simply comes down to who among them bore arms against the king's flag or colors at Ocracoke. Because by doing so, those men uh, committed an act of treason. And anyone, any of these men who were executed in Virginia were executed for being traitors and not for being pirates. And the reason is that there was a pardon From King George. Uh, There were were actually two pardons in succession, but the second pardon was sent over with such generous terms that all of Blackbeard Blackbeard himself and all of his fellow pirates would have been pardoned and free to go about their business had they not fired the first shots at Ocracoke. So the six men who were arrested at Bath, which we can deduce, included Edward Salter and John Martin who had formerly been a quartermaster both for Blackbeard and also for Benjamin Hornigold all of these men were pardoned including William Howard who was also Blackbeard's quartermaster and and also for a time quartermaster for Hornigold because none of them actually fought back in the battle and this also included and I hope we'll have we hope we'll have time to discuss him but this also included the very well-known, notorious black pirate named Caesar. But he also was pardoned and returned to returned to Bath. I have documents and evidence to prove that he was uh, the uh, a slave owned by Tobias Knight and was present in Bath ten months after he had been arrested and taken to Virginia. So he was not executed. And even Governor Lieutenant Governor Spotswood yeah. refers to Caesar. In one of his letters that he was uh, allowed to to go back to Bath because it couldn't be proven um, that he had fought at Ocracoke.
0: One of the cable channels did a special on the legendary tunnel that, that ran from Governor Eden's dock to his house. Were you involved in that, and do you have something coming up with the History Channel this year?
1: No, I actually didn't have anything to do with that particular History Channel documentary, but I can address the subject or the or the myth of the secret tunnel that led into the basement of governor eden's house and and the reason why i know this is that as i had already mentioned uh, governor governor eden actually didn't even live or own that house when blackbeard arrived in the summer of 1718 he had already sold it and then a couple hmm. of months later it was sold again to two men who i believe came from blackbeard's crew james robbins who i've already mentioned was caught in a, in a um, salacious uh, tryst with two women uh, in Governor Eden's former house, and also another mariner named Stephen Elsie. The two of those men bought uh, that plantation, which was eventually sold to the other pirate, former pirate, Edward Salter. I found a letter from the 1800s written by a man who recalled uh, when he was young in the early 19th century uh, visiting that property uh, and described the uh, the house as being quite grand, almost a, a palace of sorts. Although uh, back then it, it was uh, uh, just a frame house and not something that we would consider to be really a palace. But he did describe what uh, a subterranean pathway. It was what it was was a ballast stone ramp. That led from the dock, the shoreline, so that uh, casks and barrels could be removed from vessels at the dock and then rolled up the this stone, this ballast stone paved ramp that then led into the cellar of the governor's the governor's house. It, w- it was a pathway, not a tunnel, and it it, it goes mm-hmm. beyond. It, uh, most of these myths and stories, if you just stop and think about them and use common sense, you quickly realize how unlikely they are. For someone to, to, to say that uh, Blackbeard used to sneak treasure into Governor Eden's house by removing chests of treasure from his ship over to the dock, which would then be carried in plain view until they reached the entrance to the tunnel, um, doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and so uh, yes, there is clear evidence that the the tunnel was actually a um, a ramp, a ramp or pathway. Um, yes, I was uh, recently interviewed for an episode of the History Channel series called "History's Greatest Mysteries," hosted by Lawrence Fishburne. and the program is going to. Uh, feature a search for Blackbeard's mythical treasure. However, I'm not sure whether or not I will end up on the cutting room floor or not, because uh, it's my opinion that there really was never a treasure of of any worth whatsoever. I think that uh, a number of other famous pirates or privateers had uh, captured quite a bit more money than Blackbeard ever did. In fact, the most famous one, Sir Francis Drake, of course, had recovered something like 1.5 million British pounds in his travels around the world. But Blackbeard, when he was uh, after he was killed, and uh, his sloop and and the other possessions that were recovered from the sloop adventure were sold off in Virginia. It only raised about 2,500 pounds sterling. So it's uh, very unlikely that uh, anyone will ever find Blackbeard's treasure or. If it were, if or that it was ever found, uh, pirates simply didn't bury treasure. Uh, they pretty much spent what they had and uh, lived life to the fullest.
0: I have a couple of remaining questions for you. The first one: What happened to Tobias Knight and Governor Eden? Were they ever punished for their transgressions?
1: Tobias Knight was actually summoned to the governor's executive council in North Carolina to to answer uh, these charges that had come from Virginia that he had been complicit or had been uh, assisting uh, Blackbeard and his crew and had accepted some money or some things of value uh, in the process. Uh, Tobias Knight was a very uh, clever and uh, knowledgeable lawyer and was able to refute all of these charges and he never was convicted for aiding and abetting acts of piracy. Sadly for Tobias Knight, he fell ill in the summer of 1719 and passed away by September. So he didn't live much longer than his uh, young friend and uh, protege, uh, Blackbeard. As for Governor Eden, his reputation was uh, tarnished somewhat He also did not live very long. He passed away in 1722 uh, of yellow fever. However, he was very fortunate to have avoided any charges because when he uh, pardoned Blackbeard and his crew upon their arrival at Bath in the summer of 1718, uh, he was well aware of the fact that they had committed numerous acts of piracy that were outside the terms of the king's pardon at that time including the sensational blockade of the Port of Charleston. And by pardoning Blackbeard and his men around the 1st of July of 1718, Governor Eden exposed himself to charges of uh, serving as an accessory to acts of piracy. And in my research, I was able to determine that uh, Governor Eden could have been hanged for having given uh, given those pirates pardons. Uh, but fortunately for him, uh, he was never scrutinized that closely, although, like I said, he, he did not live too many years uh, after that. Uh, after his death, though, his family uh, made a concerted effort to try to restore his reputation and to kind of rewrite history as if he was uh, sort of forced into uh, accepting Blackbeard and his crew and, and pardoning them on behalf of the king. When, in fact, I actually believe that uh, from my research and my final conclusions after many, many years of analysis is that Governor Eden and Tobias Knight, his customs collector, and also the secretary of the governor's executive council, were both responsible for those men becoming pirates in the first place. It's, uh, it's reasonable to believe that Governor Eden, uh, for economic purposes, for the community of Bath and the colony of North Carolina, had sent out these young men from Bath in 1716, which included the man who was going to become Blackbeard the Pirate, and also uh, the pirate Caesar, who uh, I can prove uh, with documents was present in Bath in 1716, yet returned to North Carolina two years later aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge. Uh, after this two year piratical odyssey, so uh, I would say that uh, again, Governor Eden and Tobias Knight were simply doing what they thought was was best to aid uh, the the settlers and the and the taxpayers of the proprietary colony in North Carolina by sending dispatching them to the coast of Florida after hearing about these Spanish treasure wrecks, uh, not really knowing that, they would return two years later as notorious pirates. Caesar was simply Tobias Knight's investment in the salvage company, which was run sort of like a stock company. I mean, everyone was going to get uh, a percentage of the profits. I've done uh, extensive research into Caesar and have, of course, uh, published the fourth edition of my book in uh, 2015, uh, revealing that Caesar was not only, of course, uh, a slave in the household of Tobias Knight, but Tobias Knight uh, uh, acquired Caesar when he purchased this plantation at the mouth of Bath Creek, which had been previously owned by a man named Colonel Robert Daniel, who was uh, a very uh, aristocratic, uh, notable resident of South Carolina and previously Barbados, who had been sent to North Carolina in 1703, to serve as deputy governor of Carolina, uh, administering the northern part of the colony, Robert Daniel was um, ran afoul of the Quakers of the of the Albemarle area and was forced out of office in 1705. He moved to Bath, purchased this plantation at the mouth of Bath Creek, and fell in love with a woman named Martha. There was really no. Um, Minister of the Church of England present in Bath, so he, uh, they were married, uh, or he, she was became his common law wife. They had a couple of children, and then in 1709, uh, Robert Daniel decided to move back to Charleston. His wife was going to follow him a couple of years later, but Robert Daniel bequeathed to his or uh, to his wife, Martha. A number of slaves, one of whom was Caesar. Caesar was uh, uh, the property of Robert Daniel. Probably Caesar was brought to North Carolina with Daniel from South Carolina, and in 1709, Caesar was listed in this uh, document that I found as being 14 years old. And, of course, my theory is is that two plantations over from where uh, Robert Daniel lived, and also, of course, later Tobias Knight, was the plantation of Captain James Beard. And so when we read uh, in early sources like the book General History of Pirates that Caesar had been a slave who had been trained or raised, the expression used in the book written in 1724 was bred up, it says that Blackbeard bred up Caesar. Well, how could this not have how could this have happened uh, unless somehow uh, the young man who was going to, who was destined to become Blackbeard and the young man Caesar uh, lived uh, in the same mm-hmm. neighborhood, exactly. so to speak. Yep. So uh, I believe this was the basis of clearly what was a, a longstanding friendship. The story goes that. Blackbeard at the battle, as Lieutenant Maynard was approaching Blackbeard's uh, vessel at Ocracoke and about to begin the battle, uh, it's said that Blackbeard ordered Caesar to go below, and in the event that the pirates might lose the battle, uh, he ordered Caesar to ignite the casks of gunpowder to commit mass suicide to prevent the, the shameful eventual outcome of being hanged. Uh, the pirates didn't, uh, they abhorred the whole idea of being hanged and then not being buried. Their bodies just being thrown between the low tide and high tide lines yep. of a shoreline. So it's reasonable to believe, and of course, you know, Caesar did not fulfill his, his orders. If in fact that did happen, that he was ordered by Blackbeard to, to blow up the ship. Um, but the fact that Blackbeard would have given that a, given Caesar that assignment to me suggests right. that he trusted Caesar, and this trust was, was based on this long-standing friendship. I like to imagine, because I believe that the, the man who became Blackbeard probably grew up, his formative years were actually in South Carolina, along the Cooper River where Captain James Beard originated from. And I like to imagine a, a young, a young uh, Blackbeard and a young Caesar out sailing a small skiff on the Cooper River, uh, looking out on the horizon, imagining life at sea and the adventures that they might go on someday. And of course... Uh,
0: I think that's probably a pretty accurate look back into the, the, actual, the actual past for those guys. You just brought up James Beard. And if I'm, if I'm right, he died in 1711, about seven years before Blackbeard's demise. You're very, very familiar with the family deeds and the stories from Bath. What happened to his property after his death? Did he have a wife who survived him and lived on that property? And is there any, any paperwork that gives you guidance on that?
1: James Beard, uh, we know, died in Charleston, perhaps on on a on a merchant visit there. Uh, died of yellow fever, as you said, in 1711. That is correct. And James Beard, of course, owned 600 acres of land on the Neuse River, east of where Newburn, the town of Newburn is today, at a place called Beard's Creek. And he also owned this 400-acre plantation at Bath. Interestingly enough the the uh, annual uh, t- property taxes on that 400 acre plantation in Bath were paid uh every year on time uh until the year 1719 that was the first year all of a sudden whoever had been paying those taxes uh stopped paying them for whatever reason well if it had been his son That's had strange. it been his son uh Edward who became Blackbeard then uh, he wasn't around anymore to to make those payments and the, and the property eventually uh, it cheated back to uh, the colonial authorities and was resold.
0: and the records for that name and property were burned in a fire that is, is that correct that in other words, James Edward beard's name was is not available to us because there was a fire in the uh, document storage facility
1: um, as of as of now that we know of. Uh, any uh, surviving records that would prove that that James Beard's son was in fact uh, a man named Edward who became Blackbeard. However, uh, the search is still ongoing. I do believe that, uh, and have yet to have had the the opportunity to search uh, port records for Charleston, which might um, yield additional information Uh, Unfortunately, the the archives of South Carolina were decimated by the Civil War and by the fires that broke out in Columbia after Sherman's arrival there. However, uh, there are also potential clues in England, and I do believe there is the possibility that Blackbeard's personal logbook or diary, which I know existed, was recovered from his possessions after the Battle of Ocracoke was given to captain mm-hmm. ellis brand of the royal navy ship lime which returned to london and was referred to in charles johnson's general history of pirates because uh, there was a poem that blackbeard had written in that book and it's quoted uh in hmm. general history of pirates and the poem itself so i do believe um. there's the possibility that his uh diary may yet be found, and and I have, that would be be a
0: find. (laughs) That would be one for all history.
1: Yes, and and the fact is that there are, in England, in uh, numerous old uh, manor houses, uh, chests of things that have been uh, collected and possessed by families going back hundreds of years that have yet been Examined, so I do believe there is the possibility that that someday may be found.
0: Are there any Are there any other Blackbeard stories you'd like to cover before we wrap up?
1: There's there's so many stories to tell about Blackbeard, and of course, <laughs> uh, so many legends. I in fact I devoted an entire chapter of my book to uh, all of the myths and folklore, and all of the places that he supposedly buried his treasure from. The Delaware River, north of Philadelphia, to the Isle of Shoals off New Hampshire. Uh, for some reason, uh, many writers have imagined that Blackbeard would have buried his treasure beneath a tree. There's a tree um, uh, called by the Blackbeard Tree on the Noose River near the town or village of Oriental today in North Carolina.
0: Well, actually, that Noose River, that Noose River sounds like it has some possibilities. I think it was you who mentioned in part one, that in those last months before November, that there were some unexplained movements of he and his crew, but you felt that one of them might likely have been up the newsroom. What, what
1: I wrote that was correct? that uh, on the, at the end of October of 1718, uh, Blackbeard left Bath for the last time, and I was able to find documents, of course, that would confirm that this is what happened. Blackbeard departed Bath around the end of October Of course, as we know, he was killed on November 22nd. Um, There was also evidence that on the 17th of November, Blackbeard's sloop adventure had run aground in the middle of the Pamlico Sound on a shoal called Brant Island Shoals. Again, this was Monday, November 7th, 17th, Hmm. and on that Saturday of that week was the day that he was killed, November 22nd. So, the question is, what, you know, so we know he was there on that date. We know he was in Bath uh, on October thirtieth. So where was he for seventeen days during that period? And uh, I know again from my experience, as I, as I mentioned in the uh, the first episode, that uh, I have personal experience. I've for many years sailed the waters of the Pamlico River and also the Pamlico Sound and I myself have also uh, accidentally run aground on Brant Island Shoal. And I know that uh, the only way you would do that is if you were traveling into or out of the Noose River. So uh, it was my theory, again, not supported by direct evidence, but that uh, during those 17 days, Blackbeard had gone uh, up the Noose River for some reason. Well, it just so happens that the woman who we believe was his sister, Susanna Beard Frank, lived on the Noose River. And so in my book, I wrote a, uh, an episode where uh, I it's, it, it can be plausibly imagined that Blackbeard, before he was planning to depart North Carolina to sail back to the West Indies, may have visited his sister on the Noose River and may have even given her whatever Money or treasure he happened to have at that time.
0: Yeah, I think he might have felt. I think he might have felt the future closing in on him. He hadn't received a pardon yet. He had been staying way way longer than his crew wanted him to stay. Right. Well, certainly yes. Maybe he was trying to close the deal with her.
1: Right. I'm, I'm sure uh, that he may have wanted to make sure that, that that she was well taken care of. By the way. Uh, her first son, if this is another piece of circumstantial evidence, but Susanna Beard Frank's first son was named Edward, um, which is sort mm. of an intriguing clue. But yeah, there were lots of uh, issues that he was dealing with. I don't believe he was healthy. He was probably suffering from stage two of syphilis. Uh, right. He yeah. There were disagreements among his crew. They weren't sure You know what they were going to do uh, in in the future. Were they going to be honest merchant sailors, which would of course resulted in a a severe reduction in their income, uh, and uh, they would have had to work a lot harder. So it was yes, it was a time of great uncertainty and anxiety. I'm sure on Blackbeard's part.
0: There's your story for the History Channel. When you come on, I think that's a good one to follow. Well, I think that's one that a lot of people would be interested well, in. Well, I'm
1: still waiting for a producer or a screenwriter to, or um, uh, an executive producer to want to once and for all produce uh, the, the real, the true story of Blackbeard, uh, one that encompasses all these topics that we've discussed, which is, you know, economics and politics, the, the the true Blackbeard story is so much more complex and, I think, more interesting than what uh, historians and Hollywood producers have provided us. So, uh, yes.
0: I do, too. I, I obviously do, too. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, given this two episodes. and I, I don't know about our listeners, but I've been fascinated with your stories so far. And I've got a suggestion for your next book. And in a minute, I'm going to ask you to, to tell us what your books are and and the ways to get in touch with you. But first, I wanted to ask you, or first, I wanted to suggest your next book title. And that would be Edward Salter's Grave. I think that would lead the reader into the Blackbeard story from an angle that uh, that you're well qualified to cover. And I think it would be a fascinating story. Well, I,
1: I agree with you, and I have been encouraged, actually, by living descendants of Edward Salter to to write that book. I've also thought of other titles. One yeah. would be Bones of Contention, and another one would be <laughs> Skeletons in the Closet, because I it, it, uh, hope that um, I will have the, the time and the energy to, to get around to doing that. I am working on two other books. Two other books at the moment. I've never actually tried to write two books simultaneously before, <laughs> so this will be interesting. Would you
0: like to share with our listeners uh, the books that you have in print, and also also how they can find you?
1: Yes, thank you for asking. Um, my first book is titled "The Lost Light: A Civil War Mystery," which which involves the um, the missing. Uh, 1853 first-order Fresnel lens from the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse that had been stolen by Confederates and hidden and lost for 140 years. In fact, a major uh, lighthouse magazine called it the greatest unsolved mystery (laughs) of American lighthouse history, and that was true until the day that I solved the mystery and found it, and that uh, uh, historic artifact can now be seen or viewed at the graveyard of the Atlantic Museum at Hatteras, North Carolina on the Outer Banks, My second book was titled Shipwrecks of the Outer Banks, an Illustrated Guide, which sort of um, uh, explains itself, the contents. Um, I included, by the way, uh, GPS coordinates along the beaches of the Outer Banks where shipwrecks occurred or where even shipwreck artifacts can still be uh, seen. The Last Days of Blackbeard was my third book. My fourth book is titled War Zone, World War II off the North Carolina Coast, and that may be among my favorites uh, for various reasons. Maybe you'd like to uh, to uh, feature that uh, s- story on, on a future episode of A Thousand and One Heroes, because certainly there are many here.
0: I'll definitely consider that. That was a huge story, and I I know my dad my dad uh, was in the Navy and flew uh, submarine patrol uh, over the Atlantic off the coast of Virginia and North Carolina. So, yeah, it uh, definitely appeals to me.
1: I had the, the, and I consider it a very significant privilege to have uh, interviewed a couple of dozen people who were there in 1942 off the Outer Banks. Uh, I interviewed a man who was on an oil tanker that was torpedoed and erupted into uh, this gigantic ball of flame. I interviewed Coast Guardsmen who were assigned uh, rescues of of these poor victims of German U-boats. Also a man who was aboard a destroyer who witnessed the sinking of the U-85, the first German submarine sunk by U.S. forces in American waters. And probably the greatest story of all was a woman who was eight and a half months pregnant and her ship was torpedoed off of Cape Hatteras. She got into a lifeboat with 20 strangers and a few hours later, uh, went into labor and delivered a baby boy uh, oh in, a, in the lifeboat in the middle of the ocean. And they were eventually rescued by the U.S. Uh, destroyer, USS Jesse Roper. And uh, he was the little baby was named for the destroyer. He became Jesse Roper <laughs> Mohorovic. And I uh, had the great fortune to uh, interview uh, Jesse Roper Mohorovic about the courage of his mother and the ordeal that she experienced in giving birth oh to him. Oh, my
0: gosh. Um, and what's the name of that book again?
1: That book is titled War Zone, World War II Off the North Carolina Coast. Wow. My uh, fifth book is, is titled um, The Story of Cape Fear and Bald Head Island, which spans 500 years of history of uh, Cape Fear and then my sixth book is a is my shortest, smallest book, but it's titled Into the Burning Sea, the 1918 Merlot Rescue, and that involves um, a very amazing event where a British tanker in World War One in August of 1718 was torpedoed off the village of Rodanthe, and six, yes. six Coast Guardsmen launched a surf boat and went out into the ocean and disappeared into flames and smoke, and then came out four hours later with 42 of the 51 British sailors um, who were able to... I was able to find in the archives of the National Park Service a firsthand account of one of the British sailors who was on that ship as it was exploding and burning, and he wrote this story virtually on his deathbed in 1971. And um, it is quite a uh, compelling eyewitness account of that event. Wow. And I'll have to say that uh, as as far as finding these books, um, I would recommend to your listeners to avoid purchasing them currently on Amazon because uh, we, for some for some reason, amazon has has kind of locked us out of our account and we're not able to actually process those orders so other people are reselling uh, our books without any sort of payment to us. So I would say at the, at the time now, the best way to reach me is through my Facebook page and you can simply search for me uh, by my name, Kevin P. Duffus, on Facebook and, and I will uh, communicate to people through, through that uh, site. I could also provide an email address if that would work.
0: Yeah, why don't you?
1: Okay, um, my email address for contacting me for ordering books is uh, all uh, lowercase letters, looking underscore glass at earthlink.net.
0: Okay, looking underscore glass at earthlink.net. Correct. Are all your books currently in print?
1: Yes, they are all in print, and they will always be in print as long as I'm alive.
0: Okay. It's funny how stories go full circle, everybody. You might remember that the first time I ever heard of Kevin Duffus and the first time I really got to hear the true story of Blackbeard was when I stayed at the, I believe it's called the Captain's Quarters in Ocracoke, wonderful little uh, hotel right there on, I believe it's Silver Lake, right there on Silver Lake. Beautiful little place to stay. Ocracoke is just a neat little town, and every year they celebrate the Pirate Festival. And in my room is this coffee table-sized book, a just gorgeous book, The Last Days of Blackbeard the Pirate. And it starts off with Kevin's search for Susanna's grave, which he finds, and it really just takes you into the story from the very first page. I was locked on that book, and I was inspired ever since then that if I was ever going to do a book, I would start with the same type of adventure. But just a terrific book. And this has been a terrific series of interviews with you. I've really enjoyed it. I hope our listeners do as well, Kevin. But I want to thank you so much for being with us here at One Thousand One Heroes Legends Histories and Mysteries Podcast. It's been a an honor to have you with us.
1: Thank you, John. I very, very much appreciate this opportunity.
0: Well, listeners, there's actually more to this story. I was just part of the way through editing this interview when a question arose in my mind. So I hauled out the cell phone and scratched out this short missive to Kevin. Kevin, I'm editing our interview right now. I just got to the part where William Bell meets Blackbeard and his four black crewmen on the Pamlico River at 3 a.m. in the morning. My question, what was Blackbeard doing on the Pamlico at that ungodly hour? A very odd time, place, and situation. Maybe visiting his stash, or sister, or both. Also in the interview, I forgot to mention that Brad's men were promised to share of whatever they found after the battle. It was reported that they found nothing. Kevin got back to me immediately. Attached is more info than you need, John, I know. The following is a compilation of the four-part series I posted on my Facebook page in 2020. It's easier for me to send it this way than to try to write a more concise answer to your question. Also, it wasn't Brand who promised to share of the treasure to his men. Lieutenant Maynard may have done that while en route, and in fact did so after the battle in violation of his orders and within the Royal Navy, He was severely censured for doing so. Kevin's article titled, The Midnight Run to Bathtown, has been posted at our Facebook page, 1001 Heroes, for those of you who are interested. 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries podcast brings you great stories every week, sometimes interviews like this one, and often original stories now totaling over 400 stories. If you are new, I'd like to suggest some of my favorites you can easily find in our archives by searching using that little magnifying glass at the bottom of this episode or using Google search by entering 1001 Heroes Podcast plus the name of the episode you're searching for. Among my favorites, Casablanca, the incredible story behind the making of the greatest movie ever made. The Katyn Forest Massacre, Katyn spelled K-A-T-Y-N. 1952. The Year of the UFOs, Joan of Arc, Lonesome Dove, the real story behind one of the greatest westerns ever made, Little Bighorn, the backstory, a three-episode story, The Search for Bridie Murphy, one of my absolute favorites, Dutch Schultz's Catskill Treasure, and this one, In Harm's Way, the incredible story of the USS Johnson. If you've never heard that, I strongly suggest you give it a try. It's called In Harm's Way. Next, The Legend of the Lost Dutchman Mine, definitely one of my favorites. And We're Never Alone, it's a UFO story that you'll never forget if you hear it. Then there's the backstory behind Dirty Dancing. Actually, it's too hard to pick. I enjoyed sharing each and every one of these stories, all of them. Now is the time, listeners, that I'm asking you to take a few minutes out of your day and send us some reviews for 1001 Heroes and maybe mention a specific episode or two that you like. I would really enjoy hearing that from you. So this is a good time and way to say thanks for all we do. I'll share a bunch with you after next week's episode. Until then, everyone, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Stay safe out there, and as you know, we'll be back soon.